I think everyone in the room knows I'm Pastor Greg for you online. It's good to uh, be with you here this morning as well. Uh, I'm going to invite you in a moment to turn in your Bible. So if you'd like to do that ahead of time preemptively, you can. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians first, and then we'll look at 2 Corinthians a little bit later. And so uh, that's a little sneak peek. Um, it kind of it's it's interesting. You're going to have some fun this morning. I, I know. We should be able to do that when we come to church, uh, when we gather together, when we're here uh, in the in the presence of one another. We're here by grace. We're here in the love of God. We're going to have a little bit of fun here this morning because we're going to do some fun Midwestern uh, vocabulary words. So if I were to say, what words strike a chord with you as the words that, you know, those are just words that you grew up with or know and you throw around and they're kind of, if you say them in certain other places of the country, they maybe look at you a little bit funny. Um, so I'll give you a, oh, here's like maybe the word like befuzzled or befuddled. Um, one word that I remember getting, somebody responded to me with a cross-eyed uh, look at one time was when I used the word whopper-jawed. I've got nods. Okay, there's nods for whopper-jawed. Any other words that come to mind like that? That's, uh, let's, uh, uh, if you have any other kind of examples of, um, you know, words like whopper-jawed or gobbledygook or, um, oh, now, of course, I'm, I'm standing up here and I'm blanking on them, but, so that's why I need your help. Uh, any other examples of some fun, like, Midwestern, you know, words that just, oh, yeah, that makes sense to us. We, it wouldn't necessarily uh, fly anywhere else, and you wouldn't find it in fine literature necessarily. Pop. Just the word pop, yep. Just pop instead of soda, yep, that's definitely one of them. Uh, you've also got some of those pronunciations, like wash and wash and uh, spigot and spigot and pillow and pillow and milk and milk. What's that one? Caddy corner. Yeah. So caddy corner or kitty corner, something that's like, okay, well, it's not next to each other. It's kind of, it's, it's around the corner, right? That's what it means. It's not on a right angle. It's on a 45, but uh, yep. Okay, what's any other, any other? You can shout it out if you've got one that comes to mind. Some, you know, a word that you just go, oh yeah, that's a, one of those fun words. Jerry-rigged? <laughs> okay, what's another one? Say that one. Pertinier. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Pertinier. <laughs> Pertinier. Horse feathers? Is that what I heard? Horse feathers. <laughs> Hair a short? Yep. Hair a short. What was that one? Nyanta? Oh, Nyanta. Yep. Okay. Uh, so it's nigh on to, nigh on to, well, it's not Christmas time, nigh on to Christmas or nigh on to fall, getting close nigh on to fall. 
See, these are fun ones. I didn't come up with these. I've got, I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five. I've got five that we're going to look at here this morning, but you haven't said any of them yet, so I think that's great. We're, we're on, we're on the good, we're going on a good track. Any others? Have any other examples of some of these just kind of Midwestern culture fun words? Oh, we got gibberish just right up here on the... <laughs> yep. Caddy Wampus, that's a, yes, Caddy Wampus is exact, that's, that is right, you're right in my vein of thinking here now. So, okay, tuck those away, tuck those away in your, in your you know, in a mental filing cabinet and just go, okay, <laughs> somehow that's going to make sense in a few minutes, but until then, those are just some fun words. And take a look at 1 Corinthians 12 with me. This is one of my favorite few passages. You know, this is uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's opening this letter with just some greetings and salutations, and he's saying, hey, I'm glad to be writing to you, but um, I've heard there's some distressing things that I need to address, and one of those distressing things is, you know, these ideas of these people in your church have kind of separated into different groups, and you've got this group of people who think that maybe they are uh, more entitled to authority or more entitled to uh, um, rights of some sort than other people based solely on who they heard preach the gospel. Isn't that kind of interesting? Based solely on whether or not they heard the gospel through Apollos or Peter or Paul or somebody else. And so they've kind of got these factions that are developing of people who are going like, well, I'm part of Paul's, you know, Paul, Paul brought the gospel to me, or yeah, well, Peter brought the gospel to me. So Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's letting them know, guys, this is not, that's not what the gospel is all about. That's not how the gospel gets demonstrated. That's, that's not how we live this out. So um, we're going to start in verse 18, and this is what Paul has to say. He says, for the message about the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, we might not uh, um, resonate with some of the words that Paul was using there in, in this. We don't really have Jews and Greeks necessarily in our society anymore, but you're talking essentially about people who, uh, who value different things out of, out of God. Uh, for the Jews, like he said, um, how did they know that God, the one true living God, the God who had always designated his authority through signs and wonders, through both through the Old Testament, through the parting of the Red Sea, through the passing over, and, the, and through the Passover specifically, and then through Purim or these different feasts and festivals, these ways that they remembered how God had demonstrated his authority or demonstrated his love or demonstrated his saving purposes through signs and wonders. Or the Greeks, the Gentiles, who are say like, oh, but the gods are these stoic figures that are far off and aloof, and they're just very concrete and, you know, almost um, immutable. And, uh, and so you have these two different groups of people who the cross of Jesus as the gospel of God, the good news of the one true living God, the cross kind of is an affront to it's a very confusing thing. It's a, it's a thing that makes them go, wait, what? You're saying that God became a man and then he was killed? That doesn't seem very strong. That seems very weak. That doesn't seem very powerful. That seems very powerless. That doesn't seem very triumphant. That seems very, I mean, loserish. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing that the one true living God who has demonstrated his presence through signs and wonders, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing he would do. And it wouldn't be if the story ended there, but since the message of the cross is not a message of death, but a message of resurrection, all of a sudden you go, oh, well, maybe there's something here that's special. Maybe there is the one true living God who has designated his son, who has, who has vindicated his son through raising him from the dead and demonstrating that he has power over death. Well, now, now we we're talking about something that looks completely different than we expected. And yet still, Paul has to remind his church, and he says, but remember where you were when you heard this message. Remember. If we put it into our terms, not many of you had, a, had master's degrees, not many of you had doctorates, not many of you were, were high IQ folks, not many of you would be acclaimed or esteemed as the smartest in the world. That's kind of what he was saying here when he says, um, not many of you were wise by human standards. Or if he says, not many were powerful. It's like not many of you, you know, not many of you had, a, had positions of authority, not how, who, how many of us elected officials or any kind of positions of authority when we came to hear this gospel message? Not many. Not many of you were of noble birth. I mean, that'd be almost kind of like saying, you know, many of you trace your genealogy back to a certain point and say, ah, this is what makes my family special. Again, Paul is saying the gospel, the gospel came to you and met you in a place where you didn't feel like you were entitled to it when it wasn't something that you thought, oh, this makes sense for me. I deserve to hear this good news. You could almost hear, you could almost hear Paul saying, not many of you had perfect credit scores. 
right? Not many of you, but God is choosing the foolish things of the world to demonstrate His power, to demonstrate His, right? So, here's what we're going to look at here this morning. Sometimes people following Jesus look different ways. There's lots of different ways that people of Jesus look. This is, what I, this is where we need, to, I just, we need to grasp this. Because the enemy wants to come into and whisper in your soul and whisper in your mind and whisper in your heart that if you don't look like this blank thing, whatever ideal image of the victorious Christian life you envision, if you don't look like that, you're doing it wrong. When the reality is, is that Scripture tells us that the gospel comes to us in our weakness. The gospel makes sense to us because we were never doing something right. We were always doing something wrong. It makes sense to us because it, because it meets us where we are in need of Him and not the other way around. So God doesn't pad his 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 uh, his uh, what do you want to call it the Lamb's Book of Life. He's not padding that book with all the great people. So seeing, I got this good person, and I got this good person, and I got this good person, and I got this good person, so that he can look better. He's continuing to demonstrate his inexhaustible grace by continuing to call perfectly wretched sinners to hear that He loves them and He wants to spend eternity with them and He wants them to know just how good He is. And so sometimes people who are following Jesus, sometimes people who are following Jesus, look, here's our first, here's our first word, hunky-dory. I was surprised I didn't hear that one. Sometimes people following Jesus do look hunky-dory. Everything feels normal and there's nothing to complain about. And the important thing is that they demonstrate how they trust God when they rejoice with humility in their current grace. Because it is grace. If there is anything that we see in reading this, in reading this scripture, if there's anything that we, that we get to observe in looking at the life of Jesus... It's that, wow, wow, there's a lot of grace. Wow, there's so much grace. There's just grace, page after page after page. And when I say grace, what I'm not trying, I'm not trying to say what we see is God looking the other way on sin. No, what I'm trying to say is that we see God continuing to be good to bad people. God continuing to be himself, who is good and loving and perfectly full of life and peace and joy, him continuing to be and act like he is towards people who don't deserve that, towards people who have humiliated his name, who have defiled his, his holy spaces, towards people who have uh, adulterated their covenant with him, towards people who have taken him for, for granted, towards people who have tried to monetize his power, we see him continuing to be good and loving 
and glad to love them even in the midst of those mistakes. We see grace page after page after page. And so when we find people, when we find instances of folks like there's not always a lot of great examples, but sometimes we just look around and we go like, look, there's this Christian person, and everything seems fine. Why can't my life be like that? We think that they're just hunky-dory. Everything's hunky-dory. And we realize that they rejoice with humility in their current grace because that spot is grace. Okay? God is using the foolish things of the world to demonstrate His wisdom, to demonstrate how He knows better than we would ever dream or expect. And it's incredible. Here's another one, though. Sometimes, sometimes people following Jesus look bushed. Got that one? Know that one? <laughs> maybe that's not as Midwestern as I uh, maybe thought it was, but have you just come in from a long day at some point in your life and just said, I'm beat, I'm just pushed? <laughs> Pooped? <laughs> out of gas? Yep, just plumb out of gas. <laughs> bushwhacked. <laughs> Sometimes people following Jesus do look bushed. Because in their life at that moment, right then, nothing is easy, especially not the next step forward. And yet somehow, life just has a way of demanding that we take another step forward, doesn't it? It's just like we just don't get to press pause and go, okay, how do I, let's just pause? Nope. Doesn't happen. There are still kids who need fed or who need changed or, or there's still work that needs attended to. There's still emails that need responded to or there's still that big thing that you haven't known how to figure out. There's still strife or tension between you and that person you love. There's still this big question mark hanging over the future and sometimes you just feel bushed. And people who are following Jesus, sometimes people who are following Jesus look bushed. They demonstrate how they trust God with resilience when they ask Him for the grace of renewed strength, because that's the promise of Isaiah 40, that even youths grow tired or weary and even young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord, He will renew their strength. See, the strong, the strong and not the foolish, the strong and not the weak, the strong would say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and say, you just got to take another step forward, just keep plowing ahead. And I'm here to tell you that is a good way to burn out and crash. That's a good way to eventually say, I can't do this anymore and I'm just giving up. That's a good way to eventually run out of gas and be so stuck you're not exactly sure what it's going to take before you can move again. And sometimes grace has to look like saying, Lord, I just need your strength. Can you lend me your strength? Can you lend me, can you lend me grace for today? I need the daily bread, today's daily bread. 
And sometimes people who are following Jesus, sometimes people who are following Jesus look bushed. And that is not an indictment of the walk. That is not an indictment of the faith. That is not a judgment from on high saying, you're doing this all wrong. Because God wants to continue using weak and foolish things to demonstrate His strength and wisdom. Okay? Any other words you can think of for bushed? Because I didn't really like this one. I just kind of ended on it. I like out of gas. Was there another one? Synonyms, can you think of cultural or kind of a, you know, Midwestern synonyms for bushed? Maybe if you're online, you can send some, send some our way too. I'm always open to kind of suggestions. If you can think of more words that we could have used for here this morning, let's talk after service. That would be awesome. Here's another one. Sometimes people following Jesus look blue. <laughs> not that they look like Smurfs. Okay? Not, not that they look like blue people. I almost put down in the mouth, but I didn't know if that was going to be something that would ring or if that was maybe too far. Would down in the mouth have worked? Now, sometimes people who are following Jesus look down in the mouth. We saw this a little a few, couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you some observations and, and the good news that, that I see that, came, that comes out of um, John 11, when Jesus is attending Lazarus's funeral and, the, and the, the grief that's demonstrated there, the grief that's observed in that instance. Mary and Martha and Jesus' disciples, we see people who are sincerely following Him, sincerely following Jesus, and we see Jesus himself sad. Sometimes people who are following Jesus look down in the mouth. Sometimes people who are following Jesus look sad. Again, the victorious Christian life, the mature Christian life, is not one where you walk around with the smile pasted on your face all the time. Just going like, isn't life perfect and great because amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's not. Joy is not the same thing as circumstantial happiness. Joy is not the same thing as hunky-dory. Joy is what happens when even though some circumstances are difficult, I'm glad to be here. Okay? Because I am never far from my Father. I am never lost from, from home. I'm never far from home. Whatever you want to say, whatever, however you understand the closeness of God, that is where the Christian joy comes from. The Christian joy comes from being reunited to, being reborn with, the true, one true living God who is always with you and is always glad to be with you. 
And so sometimes, remember in, remember in that John 11 passage, remember when Jesus is praying and he says, Father, I thank you for hearing me? He was still sad. But I don't believe for a minute that he wasn't glad to be there because something amazing was going to happen out of that. And though the sadness would be short-lived, it was still real sadness, though God was going to redeem the circumstances and make something amazing come out of that, and, he's going to, and he was going to raise Lazarus to life. That time before the resurrection, before that being raised, that time was still sad. So these, sometimes people following Jesus look blue because loss is hard. Dreams, hopes, expectations can all get pulled out from under us. These people following Jesus that look blue, they demonstrate how they trust God when they let the Lord himself be their prize and joy. Do you ever see this in, uh, when, when the Lord is talking to Israel? says that you will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. And there's this, this relational joy that the Lord desires and experiences and owns with his people. And Peter writes about this in the New Testament even. He's writing to his friends, the churches, of the, he calls them the scattered churches, the diaspora. He says that once you were not even a people, but now you are a people. God has called you his own treasured possession. Is he, is he yours? Because this is the one thing that cannot be lost. The gift of the Lord's presence, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the treasure of knowing that you are redeemed, restored, reunited to your eternal family. Can't lose that. Can't lose it. That's good news. That doesn't mean that sometimes other things aren't lost. It just means that sometimes people following Jesus look blue. We go, this happened, and I'm sad. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of my, you know, it's not, it's, it, has not lost, it has not caused me to lose hope in, in where I know and what ultimate treasure that I have stored up in heavenly places. But for right now, in this moment, in this day, in this hour, in this minute, I'm sad that doesn't mean that you've done something. That doesn't mean that you have done anything wrong. That does not mean that you are following Jesus wrong. Feeling sad does not mean you are following Jesus wrong. The Lord himself felt sad. Okay? Okay? <laughs> I think this next one is a, is a fun one. This is maybe one of my most fun uh, Midwest words or uh, one, of these, one of these things. So sometimes people following Jesus look discombobulated. You know that one? <laughs> what does discombobulated mean? 
yeah, confused, out of sorts, uh, lost, <laughs> somewhat just uh, bewildered. Um, there are other words that go along with that that you can that you come up with, like this. Like I said, so we could have had this befuzzled or befuddled or um, these kind of things. But discombobulated, I just mean that's just a great one. Discombobulated, just this mashup of a word. Discombobulated. Sometimes people following Jesus look discombobulated. Here's here's one of my. This I mean, when you imagine scripture, okay, maybe you have this kind of mind imagination like me. But when you're reading scripture, when you're reading these stories, when you're reading uh, the, you know, people telling us what happened. When you think about Acts chapter one. Okay, Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus, and he's spending time with the disciples. And he's already told them multiple times over the last 50 days that uh, he was going to be going away. Okay, and even the night before his betrayal, even, even in the upper room, he told them, in a little while you will see me no longer, and then after a little while longer, then you will see me again. And he's trying to tell them, he's trying to prepare them not to be despondent, not to have despair when he's put to death because he's, they're going to see him again. You know, he is the resurrection and the life. And so after he's raised to life, you kind of get this thought that maybe they're going like, okay, well, now he's going to usher in the new Jerusalem and the new Israel, and we're just going to reign over this whole world for the next, you know, forever. This is going to be awesome because death can't touch him. He's already defeated death. I mean, that's the best. If you, if you had a king who couldn't be killed, what kind of confidence would you have in going to war with him? I mean, it's like when Superman, or, or sorry, maybe not even Superman, maybe almost makes me think of like Luke Skywalker in this, uh, you know, The Last Jedi, when he's just out there at Hoth, and they're just going crazy, and they're just, oh, it wasn't Hoth, it's the salt planet, sorry. Um, you know, and they fired all the guns at him, and he just stands there, and, it, and all the smoke clears and everything, and he's still standing there, like, what are you going to do? It kind of remind, it reminds me of that a little bit because Jesus was killed in the most horrific and heinous and the most painful kind of way. And then he's three days later, just three days later, is resurrected. What kind of confidence do the disciples have in what he can do now and what he's capable of and where he's going and where they're going to follow him? I get the impression that they have the greatest, the highest confidence ever. But what we see in Acts chapter 1, what happens is that Jesus tells them, okay, I'm going away now. Don't leave Jerusalem until I give you the Holy Spirit. Stay here until you receive the gift from my Father. And then it says that he, the, this ascension, you know, so he, he's taken up into heaven. And the scripture says that they stand there doing this. And that it takes an angel to tell them, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking at the sky? <laughs> and that it takes, it takes an angel for them to go, what just happened? They were a little discombobulated. They were a little confused because they had some different expectations of what was just about, and something else happened entirely. Right? So sometimes people who are following Jesus look discombobulated. I've been discombobulated in my own life more than once. <laughs> so many more times than one. I mean, more times than I can count. How many times in your life 
in your journey following Christ, have you, not maybe physically, but have you almost in heart gone, been doing this? What just happened? <laughs> we just don't understand everything we think we should. We feel things were supposed to be different than this. We ask, why is this like that? Because you can fill in your own blanks. Those are supposed to be blank. It's not an error. But the Christians who continue to follow Jesus in the midst of being discombobulated, they demonstrate how they trust God when they give up peace that's tied to understanding. Do you know what peace feels like? Do you know what peace that surpasses understanding feels like? I, I, I tend to be a, I want to understand guy. Like I tend to be a, hey, let's put all these pieces in place and let's lay this out and let's have some clear expectations and let's have a clear understanding of, okay, how do we, I want a comprehensive approach to life. And faith flies in the face of that all the time trusting God in a relational, interactive, actually trusting way flies in the face of my desire to comprehend and understand 50,000% of the time. But I have on more than one occasion, and I know many others who would testify to this, you could raise your hands in the room, how many of you have ever, just by show of hands, how many of you have ever felt peace that went beyond understanding? Peace that was not from understanding, peace that came and it was beyond just understanding. It wasn't confidence in the plan. It wasn't confidence and comprehension in the plan. It wasn't confidence in knowing a way forward. It was peace that surpasses understanding. And sometimes people who are following Jesus look discombobulated. Sometimes our world is just thrown 90 degrees and our heads keep spinning and we stand there, we just going, what just, we, some of us are still doing this today. We're looking up and we're going, what just happened? And sometimes what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it looks like to experience grace in the midst of that weakness is to give up understanding and say, God, I just need your peace. God, if I could have your peace, that would be enough. God, if you would give me the grace of peace, that would be enough. But I want you to know today here, friends, that just because maybe sometime you feel discombobulated does not mean you're following Jesus wrong. Because Jesus never promised understanding. He promised to be with you. He promised to give you peace. He promised to be with you 
even when you don't understand. In that same upper room discourse in uh, John around chapter 16, he even tells the disciples, he says something like, in this world you're going to have some troubles, but don't be afraid, I've overcome the world. I get a little peace out of that. I get a lot of peace out of that. I get a great deal of peace out of that. And even though my flesh, even though my, the way that I'm wired yearns to understand, sometimes, sometimes getting discombobulated means I get to demonstrate how good God is. Sometimes being able to look at a friend or, or look at a, a neighbor or look at a, somebody who looks up to you or somebody who, just a, a family member, and they say, do you understand any of this? And sometimes being able to say, I really don't. Sometimes that's grace. <laughs> sometimes being able to say, I don't know. Sometimes that's grace. <laughs> Because sometimes that means you get to say, but I believe, I believe in God. I believe in the Lord. I believe the Lord has, a, has I, I believe he's in charge of things. I don't think anything surprises Jesus. You know, I don't understand, but I really don't think anything surprises Jesus. I really don't know what's going on. But, I don't think that God has lost control of reality. He said that his eye is on the sparrow. He knows the hairs on my head. And there's some peace in that. My very favorite this next time you're going to see this, the words change, okay? Because I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to try not to get, um, I'm going to try not to get, be emotional about it. But people who are following Jesus always, okay, here's a no matter what, because I can't find an instance in Scripture, and I cannot find an instance in my history of 30-whatever years in interacting with church people and watching people follow the Lord and hearing stories and testimonies, I have yet to find where this is not true. Okay? My very favorite Midwestern word. No matter what, though, people following Jesus are always a little whopper-jawed. You're going, what did you call me? What does whopper-jawed mean? A skewed. What's that one? Mixed up. Mixed up. Any other with whopper jawed? Say that one again. Doesn't quite fit. Okay. I heard another. Astonished. <laughs> what was what was this one over here? Flabbergasted. That's a good one. Whopper jawed. Whopper jawed. 
tongue-tied. Whopperjawed means it's a little crooked. Whopperjawed means something is just a little off. It's like if I were to, if I were to turn the table, watch, I'm going to drive somebody in the booth crazy. If I turn the table a little bit over here, and then I just say, ah, oh, it's all whopperjawed now. <laughs> somebody back there is going nuts right now because we are not centered on the platform. And some of you are too. You're all saying it's crooked. It's whopper jawed. It's off. Make it stop. I can't handle this. Okay. Whopper jawed. Like that. (laughs) Exactly. Like the window shade up there on on the window. Now everybody knows that there's a window shade up there that's a little crooked. Yep. Whopper jawed. I've never met anyone following Jesus who wasn't a little whopper jawed. You know why? Because I've never met anybody who was following Jesus who wasn't also simultaneously impacted and affected by a fallen world where sin still has its way in circumstances in our own lives. And that's what sin means. Sin means that something is off the mark. Sin means something's whopper jawed. Sin means that where it was supposed to go, it went different. And sometimes we feel crooked. Sometimes we feel like we walk maybe, maybe sometimes, maybe more than once the enemy of your soul and the enemy of your salvation and the enemy of the love of God in your life has whispered to your heart, something's wrong with you. because you messed up again, or because you had that thought, or because fill in the blank. And that you must not be following Jesus right. But for those of us who know we have a whopper jawed kind of faith, or for those of us who know that we had a whopper that we that we have been invited to have a, a whopper jawed kind of abundant life, maybe even that's where that's that's the good news of grace. See, because we are not the self-made, we are the grace-made. We are not the altogether; we are the redeemed. We are not the strong, we know the one who is. See, and the more that we come to terms with our weakness, the more we start to see how great God's grace is. The more we come to terms with having a whopper-jawed kind of walk, the more we start to see, wow, God, you really love me. You really do, like in a real, actual, real kind of way. Despite the confusion that comes to our brains and despite the way that our body doesn't work exactly the way that we think that it was supposed to or despite the way that life feels sometimes, I told you we were going to look at 2 Corinthians, so let's do that. Let's jump back over to 2 Corinthians. You see, here's what happened. 
is that Paul had this conversation with his church, with, with the Corinthian church, and he reminded them that it was that they were not all called out of their strength, that it was the foolishness that, that made God's grace so apparent, that it was the weak things of the world that God was using to demonstrate his strength, and that it was the foolish things that he, God was using to demonstrate his wisdom. And then years passed and he had to send them another letter because they got infected by this idea that people who really follow Jesus always had this like super kind of Christianity about them. And so there were people coming through their towns that were saying that, oh no, anybody who's following Jesus, they perform miracles. They never sin. God has given them health and wealth. And Paul's saying, like, what's super apostles? I'm not a super apostle, but here I'm going to tell you what my life is really like, and I think I'm following Jesus, right? So here's what Paul does, is he lays out this whole argument pretending to boast, pretending to brag about how God has blessed him. But everything God blesses him with was really difficult stuff, like, like getting whipped and having shipwrecks and, and, and being stoned. Sorry, I should say... Yeah, being stoned, not getting stoned. Really, really, really difficult things. And here's what Paul says then. Okay, you're with me? It's 2 Corinthians. <laughs> 12. Here's what Paul, Paul you know, the great missionary wrote most of the New Testament. He says, if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh." a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So here's what Paul has to say now. This is the conclusion. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, that's when I'm strong. The good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus the good news of the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world, that good news meets us in a place of dependence and need, not in a place of deserving and strength, not in a place where Jesus is picking dodgeball teams and saying, like, you look like a great one. Come and play with me. I need you on my team. It's, it's not Jesus isn't picking dodgeball teams. Jesus is redeeming and restoring souls. Jesus is redeeming lives. Jesus is restoring brothers and sisters back to his family. Jesus is letting people know there's grace for that. There's, there's grace for that. 
So where do you see his grace in your life? It's going to be tied to weakness. If we're going to be honest, where we see his grace in our life is going to be tied to where we feel the weakest. It's, it's a lie. I just want you to know it's a lie straight from hell that suggests you can't be following Jesus right if you ever feel discombobulated or blue or bushed. What was our first one? Honky dory. <laughs> what was our second one? <laughs> yeah. <Let's> see. <laughs> Jesus wants to use his strength, and he is never going to grow you to a place where you don't need him anymore. He loves, he loves, he loves to be needed. Can't be exhausted. He can't be tired out. Loves walking through life with you. Loves being part of the whole journey with you. Loves being the one that, sa- that, that you come back to and say, what am I going to do now? And he says, trust me. It's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. I just hope we don't forget that, that somehow we can move forward and think that we never, out, we never outgrow our need for grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we need you. We need you we need you, we need you. Lord, we need you. Some of us in this room need renewed strength. God, give us grace. Lord, some of us in this room need peace that passes understanding. Lord, give us grace. Lord, some of us in this room need humility and to rejoice in your grace. Lord, some of us in this room need to remember that you've made us and restored us and called us to be a testimony to how you are strong and we are not, and to how you are wise and we are not. Lord, give us grace. For your name's sake, amen.